on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. So the fact that our, our parents impact our beliefs, our cultural milieu impacts our beliefs, and actually our, we carry some of our beliefs in our very bodies. It hopefully takes some of the sting away from the outrage that you feel when you meet somebody who has very different opinions from you. Because the truth is, we can't really help our opinions that much. Our core, deep sort of approach, that we can't change, most likely. And therefore, if we can't change it in ourselves, we've got to be a lot more tolerant of people we disagree with who also can't change it in themselves. Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Stover, and I interview purpose-driven founders and leaders to educate, inspire, and empower your success in leaving an impact on the world. The goal here is for the rest of us to ask the world's biggest questions, build startups to solve them, and live fulfilling lives in the process. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. I'm Brandon Stover, and today's guest is a media entrepreneur, venture partner, former journalist, author, and political analyst who is on a mission to empower civil discourse by mapping the entirety of the world's opinions on one platform. So far, they have 5,000 members who have voted over 150,000 times on 1,500 opinions and 5,000 arguments, all aimed at helping each other understand one another better on the issues most important to our time. And who better to discover how the world thinks than this founder who has dodged bullets in the Middle East and attacks on his ideas in the boardroom. He began his career writing for magazines like The Economist, The Nation, and The TLS, published a reader on Saddam Hussein, covered the Second Gulf War as a journalist, and eventually launched the Beirut Review of Books, a joint venture with the Lebanese Daily Star and the International Herald Tribune. But in 2007, he jumped into the tech game as co-founder of Demotics, which was a grassroots newswire providing freelance reporters and photojournalists around the world with a platform to share their stories and images with the world's media. Demotics won numerous awards for innovation in both media in the US and UK and built a giant network of over 75,000 photojournalists around the world before selling to Bill Gates' Corbis Corporation in 2012. Additionally, he sits on the boards of Open Democracy, the New Humanitarian, and the Signal Network, and has been a trustee of the Index of Censorship and the Bureau for Investigative Journalism. Today's guest is Turi Munit, founder of Parlia, the Encyclopedia of Opinion. Before becoming a tech entrepreneur, Turi had a 20-year career in journalism where he traveled around the world writing for the British and U.S. press on Middle Eastern politics and lecturing on new media. During that time, he founded a few small startups and started understanding why business was well-suited for solving problems at scale. Brandon, I should say how grateful I am to be on this podcast with you amongst such an amazingly stellar cast of guests that you've previously had. It's a privilege to be talking to you. So thank you. So I studied medieval history and Arabic at universities. I was really interested in the context of sort of the birth of Islam. I was really interested in that early part of history. And then, of course, as soon as I graduated, I graduated in 1999, working as a publisher, writing for the newspapers. Not very long thereafter, 9-11 took place, hmm. 2001, year and a half after. And from a quite genteel engagement career in regional studies and literature, etc., around the Middle East, obviously suddenly it became the most important political sphere around. So I was pulled into politics there and adored it. Suddenly that immediate engagement in what the world was doing, being able to put 
to use some of my language skills and the travel that I put in, done in the region sort of pulled me accidentally into journalism. I started life as a publisher, publishing quite dry academic books about regional studies, the the, the Ottomans in Yemen, the 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 settlement of Jerusalem by the Arabs in the seventh and eighth centuries, etc. And suddenly was pulled into hard politics, which I adored because of its immediacy. Hmm. So I started writing for the newspapers then book reviews, opinion columns about radicalization in the region, about what was going on in Israel-Palestine, et cetera. And then sort of ed edged more into that with proper journalism, proper war, war, war journalism. I went to Iraq in 2003, just after the occupation invasion to topple Saddam Hussein, the aftermath of this fraudulent claim that he had weapons of mass destruction, but nevertheless very sincere humanitarian interventionist instinct get rid of a man who was, you know, a monstrous tyrant for right. 25 million Iraqis. So I was there for a while, had the most extraordinary time and came back to the UK to build a something that we called the Beirut Review of Books. I did it with my oldest friend from university. The, we were, the hubris here is just terrible. And perhaps hubris is sort of the underlying leitmotif of my of all my work. But yeah, we wanted to compete with the London Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, the LA Review of Books. What we What we realized was that what we felt was that there was global focus on a part of the world which basically nobody understood. Mm. There was no way of translating the Middle East sophisticatedly right. into English. You had neocons at the time who had a one absurd, simplistic, reductive view of the region. You had the hard left that had a completely different, simplistic, reductive view of the region. And we thought, there's got to be a way of treating the Middle East with the same degree of sophistication and intelligence and curiosity and detail as we treat everywhere else. But it's been such a combustible, volatile region with such strong emotions left, right, and center that it sort of evaded that sophisticated analysis. So, you know, age 26, 27, we founded this magazine in conjunction with the biggest English language newspaper in Lebanon called the Daily Star and found ourselves in partnership with the Herald Tribune, now mm -hmm. the New York Times, International New York Times, publishing articles on everything from Quranic exegesis through to, you know, detailed political studies of what was going on in the Ba'ath Party in, in, in Syria, for example. So that was, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed doing that. And then moved into think tank work. I, I was then hired to run the Middle East program for the world's oldest defense think tank called RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, which for your American listeners, you can kind of imagine. It's a beautiful building on Whitehall opposite Downing Street, 18th century banqueting hall and endless colonels and rear admirals wandering around in either military uniform or three-piece suits, sort of dribbling down their ties a very, very old-fashioned place founded by the Duke of Wellington. So that was that was hilarious. I found it very frustrating. So much conversation with ambassadors, not enough conversation with, with practitioners. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the problems of lots of policy work is that you end up talking at very high level with the people who with people who actually can't necessarily get things done. Yeah. So was this what started to draw you to business instead of being somebody that's thinking about these issues, but becoming a practitioner and seeing business as the best way to do that? I mean, your first successful startup, Demotics, was a grassroots newswire, which became a giant network of 75,000 photojournalists around the world. What was it that said, okay, business is the best solution for the problems that I'm seeing? 
Great, great question, Brandon. And actually, it still wasn't, I still had that, still quite hadn't hit me by that point. So at this point, I tried journalism. I'd been a publisher, uh, an editor, I'd been in policy. At a certain point, I thought I should go into academia. So I got a wonderful scholarship to NYU, in fact, to study anthropology of religion, to understand, try and understand why radicalization took place, why, how politics and, and religion merge in some ways. I did that for a year and realized it was way too slow. And mm-hmm. it's at that point that I realized, okay, none of these things are giving me the kind of immediacy that I need, nor are they having the scale of impact that, uh, that I need. Top academics, of course, can change the way the world thinks. I was never going to be one of those. I suddenly realized I was more of a producer than a creative, that I could help other people do do really interesting things at scale. And so left NYU halfway through the PhD, to my shame, but immense relief, came back to the UK and started getting involved in entrepreneurship in peculiar places. So I joined a friend of mine trying to set up businesses in Afghanistan as a classic sort of trade, not aid approach to, to the world. I then tried to set up a huge biofuels plantation in Ghana in West Africa with the view that rather than exporting oil from Nigeria and elsewhere, importing it into these countries, there was a possibility of sort of leapfrogging this tremendous dependency on fossil fuels and going straight to biofuels as an alternative. Hmm. Totally misguided, exactly not the way to go. It turns out that solar is absolutely better off than biofuels for this kind of stuff. But this was, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah, having um, your time a little bit. A little bit ahead of my time and wrong, like people who are ahead of their time can be often. But but yeah, again, trying to work out how you build a business which works at scale and does good by virtue of existing. And so that was the idea there, a local biofuels plantation for Ghana, which would have massively reduced their dependence on uh, external fossil fuels, created a local industry, created huge amounts of employment to build it out across the country. Anyway, did that for, for about a year, year and a half, realized that it was not going to work. My backers in, the, in, in this instance were non, non-supportive and it was a hard slog. And at that point, realized that I wanted to go back to my first and I suppose really only love, which is media. Hmm. And that's when uh, I pulled another poor friend (laughs) into building Demotics. We were in the beginning of sort of Web 2.0. This is 2007, 2008. The news industry had been decimated by the arrival of Google and Facebook and the arrival of Craigslist, which took all classified advertising, which had been the domain and a huge revenue driver for media companies all over the world. It was the first massive dent that disintermediation made on these old-fashioned businesses. Suddenly people realized that they could advertise advertise direct to the person who's going to buy without having to go through the media company. So this was a moment of crisis for the news industry. And at the same time, suddenly starting to get a sense that the internet was going to create a possibility for everybody to have a voice, everybody mm-hmm. to contribute to global discourse. And so what we tried to do was to build from the bottom up, a kind of associated press or Reuters, but for everybody, for the little guy, rather than a top-down approach to news gathering, which usually has people who look a lot like me and you, white men from developed countries being sent out across the world to go and discover what's going on there. We, We thought, let's build a platform to allow local people to tell local stories to a global audience. So I wanted to build the associated press for it from the bottom up. Turns out that launching a startup in 2008 in the teeth of the credit crunch was a really painful business. So we only were able to raise a little bit of money. But what we did do was to build, rather than do the whole print 
and video and audio and everything else, we built up a network of photographers and photojournalists really in every single country in the world. By the time we sold the company, we were 75,000 people. But we built up the biggest network of photojournalists around on a very simple premise that you, photographer in Bamako, Mali, would see a crash on the streets or would witness a protest or whatever it might be. You'd upload your photos to Demotics. We'd verify them and then send them around to all the big news publications around mm. the world, from the New York Times through to the South China Morning Post and all the big TV companies as well. That's what we did. When I first started the business, a lot of people said, well, just build it as a nonprofit. You should build it as a, it's an NGO. It's a perfect NGO. It's exactly the kind of thing that Open Society Foundations or George Soros would fund because you're, demo you're helping democratize people's voices. You're giving a voice to people who don't traditionally have one. My view then was, yes, that's true. But if we can build this in such a way that we have an equal relationship between me, the provider of the platform, and you, the provider of the photography, there's no, there's not that imbalance which nonprofits can often slip into, which I've always found slightly problematic. I worked in nonprofits as an intern during my time at university, and sometimes they do tremendous work. And, and I've also worked on the boards of a number of nonprofits, particularly in the free speech space, and they do tremendous work. But to really hit scale, I felt this has to be a business. This has to be a quid pro quo, which is valuable for everybody. For me, because I'm growing this giant network of contributors and feeding imagery and eventually video into these big broadcasters and, and news publications. And for my contributors, they need to be making money out of this because that's yeah. what's going to come bring them back. So that was the that was the approach that we took. And it was the right approach. I really think this is important for listeners to understand just why making this a for profit rather than a nonprofit was the right choice. So can you describe the type of impact that Demotics was able to have by being a for profit? Not only did we disperse millions of dollars revenue to people around the world, but we also we also did journalistic work that really nobody was able to do. There was a failed revolution in Iran in 2009, and we had 20, 25 independent photographers on the streets of Tehran when nobody else was there. Hmm. The, a whole bunch of foreign journalists flew over. They were all immediately arrested and sent to jail. And we had local Iranians on the streets sending us photos and, and pictures of these protests via, via a VPN, which was an absolute nightmare because the Iranians throttled the internet. We, <laughs> we had to anonymize everything. I mean, the whole thing was about as thrilling and exciting and, and moving uh, a moment in my, in my career, being able to do this. We then followed it up with the Arab Spring, we had so many contributors from across the region. You remember in 2011, there was this explosion of sort of popular discontent with the patriarchal, often tyrannical rulers of the Arab Middle East, which unfortunately, in almost all instances, these revolutions failed. But we were there to cover it. And I remember at a certain point, this made me cry, at a certain point, we were sent a batch of images from Bahrain. And they were, they were pictures of a giant wall in Manama, the capital, which had scrawled on it, thank you, Demotics, for the coverage. Because wow. everybody else had been blocked. All the big news agencies had been refused entry into Bahrain. And we still had local Bahrainis on the ground who were secretly and with utmost care sending us images that we were then descending on to mainstream media. So that was deeply moving. And I think we did some really interesting work. I think we did some, we did some groundbreaking work in terms of business models 
you know, this distributed network of contributors who are all freelancers. I suppose on some level, it's a bit like the gig economy, yeah. but it's the gig economy and media in that way, which really hadn't been pushed out in, to, to that extent at least before. So that was glorious and, and an amazing journey, both from a business perspective as, as well as a sort of political and journalistic one. And eventually we sold the company to, to Corbis, which was Bill Gates is big, the second biggest picture agency in the world after Getty Images. And we sold it to them to, to sort of lead their news coverage. And then I stepped down. Are there any major key lessons from that experience with Demotics that would be particularly helpful for first-time founders? If the thing is difficult, do it yourself hmm. first before you hire somebody else to try and do it. This is almost invariably the case with tech founders. They hate sales. So they hire a salesperson as fast as they possibly can to outsource their problems there. Never do that. Learn how to do sales yourself before you hire other people. Ditto with operations. Ditto a little bit with marketing, all these other things. As much as you can, especially if it's a small startup which you're trying to grow organically, really make sure that you know what you're doing in all of those cases. So yeah, hire slowly. Again, these are banalities. You read the lean startup, you know all these things. Hire slowly, fire fast. What else? I suppose in the context of Evolve, and in the context of the work that we're all looking at, which is how to really have a social impact as well as build a big, valuable company. The thing which interested me is what are the, where the trade-offs are both sides. So take Demotics as an example. We decided to go as a, for a for-profit model because we thought we could scale a lot faster, right? And I also felt that the kind of money that we'd be able to raise would be less political because venture capital only cares about money. All it cares about is that you're improving the business and you're growing in that way. Nonprofit donors often have tons of other motives mm -hmm. and tons of very explicit interests. So because we were a media company, the last thing that I wanted was political interests on my board or on my cap table, really. Right. And even if those political interests are nonprofit, I felt there might be some issues there. So trade-off, that was all the positives of going for a for-profit model. They're always negatives. And one of the negatives for us was at a certain point, and I can admit this now many years later, but if I had only gone down, if I'd truly only been a for-profit business, at a certain point, it became very clear to me and members of the team that we were making a lot more money distributing images from the developed world mm -hmm. than from the non-developed world. So to really optimize revenue, I probably should have dropped all coverage that we were doing of exactly what I've just described, right. Bahrain, Iran, and elsewhere, and really focused on paparazzi stuff. We stopped selling any pictures of Iran when Michael Jackson died. Hmm. He died in the summer of 2009, I think, yeah. at which point all the newspapers switched their coverage from covering Iran to covering Michael Jackson. Couldn't get a picture sold anywhere. Wow. And and we, we kept on bumping into this. We had these extraordinary guys who are taking photos of the Somali Al-Shabaab militia in Mogadishu. Extraordinary pictures. They all came in on one day. And on the same day, one of our regular contributors went to Green Park, which is this beautiful park next to Buckingham Palace in London, and took pictures of a man on a bench with a pelican. 
those Pelican pictures we sold to every single newspaper in the UK. <laughs> those pic- those pictures of the, except for the Guardian, those pictures of from Mogadishu, they continue to gather, you know, cyber dust somewhere on the on, on the on the internet. We never sold them. So there is a trade-off there. And at a certain point, I think I was probably conning my shareholders at least a little bit because I didn't optimize exclusively for revenue. I optimized mm-hmm. for brand. I optimized for position. I optimized for the work that I wanted us to be doing. Our ultimate sale was also dependent on the fact that we did have this great brand and were doing great coverage at a global level. But if I'd just been focusing on optimizing revenue, it had been I would have probably had to go down a slightly different route. So there are pros and cons to either whichever model you go. And if you are, if you do in a sense have, as all your guests do, a kind of double bottom line, it's it's a it's a tricky one. We can't we can't just go shareholder value is the only thing that counts. There are stakeholders involved as well. But hey, maybe when uh, when I'm feeling optimistic, I feel like, you know, maybe late 21st century capitalism starts taking more account of stakeholders anyway. Well, thank you for sharing that. It gives a good um, picture and tee up for describing what's going to happen with um, Parlia, your new venture. So describe to listeners what occurred in 2016 that sparked the idea for Parlia. <laughs> What did not happen in 2016, <laughs> Brandon? So here in the UK, some of your American listeners will remember we had this little thing called Brexit. So Britain had been part of the European Union for some time. We've always had a fractious relationship with it, in part because in part because we blame Europe for so many of the ills which are built and made and perpetuated at home. And it's, it's a useful external scapegoat. And so we had this brutal referendum which really pulled the country, really pulled the country apart on some level. The end. The, the play out of this referendum was 52% of voters voted to leave the European Union against 48% who wanted to stay. Mm. And thus, it was not a, a, a gentle spectrum of opinion. What happened here was a very, very brutal split between people who wanted to stay and people who wanted to remain. There was no kind of in-between. Either you were one side or another. You were red or you were blue. And that gave me a visceral sense of something which happens in the US every four years when you have your presidential elections and really people do violently sort into these two camps of Democrat and Republican. But of course, in the US in 2016, it was not a standard election. It was Hillary Clinton, the first woman to stand uh, for, for election as president, versus Donald Trump, who is by no conceivable means a sort of a a standard candidate. And of course, the polarization which you guys saw on the US, in the US between these two between these two sides was, I think, probably a level of violence and brutality and hatred that you that had really had, at least in my in my political lifetime, I'd never seen in the US. Even Gore Bush didn't have that degree of violence and very, sort of vitriol. What I think hit me in 2016 was that political consensus, at least in the two countries which I spent the most time thinking about, political consensus was absolutely shot. It may have been shot long before, I just hadn't noticed it. Metropolitan, overeducated elite in the way that many of us are, I had a completely different reading of the political situation, both in the UK and the US. Both these results came as a brutal wake-up call and surprise to me. And, and it made me realize, one, that we were in extremely polarized times. And two, that there was a real failure to translate, a failure to understand all sides of these opinions. I was, 
at first outraged by the results of both the Brexit referendum. I was a Remainer. I wanted the UK to stay inside Europe. And of course, by the US election, I was a very fervent Hillary supporter had I, had I been able to and very anti-Trump. So I was outraged at first. And then what I, what that outrage turned in a sense to mortification and mortification that I had been so far from the pulse of politics to not have any inkling that these things were happening. Hmm. So in a sense, <laughs> some kind of meltdown. And then, and then I asked myself what it is that one might be able to do about it. One, this brutal polarization. Two, this complete incapacity to have heard, to have listened, to have even realized that there was another side. And I'm somebody who spends, you know, way too much of my day reading and consuming news media of all types. I'm obsessed with it, as many of us are. So that was this key realization was that we have polarization to fix, and we've got this fundamental issue around being able to hear alternative opinions. The third thing that hit me after you know nine months of a Brexit referendum with every single day thousands of words spilt on this particular issue, and then following the US election, which was exactly the same thing, a relentless avalanche of words about, these, the, 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 about, about the election, was that actually there was only three, four arguments on either side of the Brexit referendum. There are only three, four real reasons why people would vote Trump or people would vote Hillary. And suddenly it occurred to me that there was such a tremendous waste of intellectual effort and journalism and conversation around these issues. We weren't getting to the actual nub of what was going on. We must have spilt billions of words on both these issues. It suddenly occurred to me that the thing was not more content explaining what the arguments were. It was more platforms helping you to hear the other side. That was the thinking. And what it prompted in my sort of perennially hubristic and slightly delusional and self-important <laughs> mind was, if there's a limited number of opinions about something as complex as Brexit, a limited number of arguments for voting Hillary or for voting Donald, there's a limited number of arguments for everything. And if that's the case, one should be able to build an encyclopedia of opinions. Mm. We should be able to build a database of all ideas about everything. So that's, if you want, my God complex. And that's what we're trying to build with Palia, an encyclopedia, a database, a home for all opinions on the internet in a single place. Now, why go ahead and do this? What are the implications of having all opinions in one place? Why? Pick a subject. We should abolish the monarchy. That opinion is articulated, God knows, 10,000 times on Reddit, you'll probably find it, maybe 100,000 times. You'll find it at least a million times on Facebook, and you'll find it 10 million, not to say 100 million times on Twitter. <laughs> it's been made so many times, and the same arguments are rehashed every time over and over again. What Palia wants to do is to have that argument once, and for it to exist forever. So what we're building is opinion cards upon which people can thrash out these arguments kind of once and for all. So you'll go to Palia, and you'll see an opinion which says, we should abolish the monarchy. And in that card, you'll have people who'll argue for it and people who'll argue against it. You'll have people arguing um, for a mixed response to it. You'll have people supplying commentary to it. And you'll have people voting on it. That's what Palia is trying to do. So here, what we're trying to do is to build a place in which the argument is there once and for all. You don't have to, get, you don't have to Google a dozen different sites to get a view of of what they are. Here it is in as simple as languages, a community builds out for you to be able to make up your mind. 
And there the idea is, can we help people hear the other sides of these arguments? Can we help them see them in a single place, see the best stuff bubble up to the surface? A little bit like Goodreads. You know, you have a title of a book and then a bunch of smart people giving great reviews of that book, which helps you decide where you stand on these things. Well, we want to do exactly the same thing for whether we should abolish the monarchy in the UK, whether the Electoral College, which I suppose is an equivalent in the US, should also be reformed. You know, so those are political topics if you want. We're looking at everything through the culture wars as well. Is obesity as a disease? How does one understand transgenderism? Through to sort of, you know, 21st century ethics. Should a guy pay on, pay on the first date? Is infidelity all that bad a thing? Et cetera, et cetera, that kind of stuff. So we want to pull, we're not, we don't want to be too highfalutin. We don't want to be pompous. We want to be covering you know, complex philosophy. Like we want to be covering, you know, where the pineapple goes on pizza. We want to be covering all these things, but we want to be doing it in a sense once and for all. So that's what we're trying to do with, with, with Palia. That's step one. Step two, and I'm super interested and excited by this, is we're not just describing what the arguments are for these various different opinions. We're also sharing how people think about them. So when you come to Palia, you can vote on opinions. You can tell us whether you think the monarchy should be abolished or whether obesity is or isn't a disease, whether Star Trek is better than Star Wars. And what we do, we collect some demographic information about everybody who's trying to vote. So that's, I think, this key piece. And what we're trying to do with this voting piece, these, all these demographic insights which we share with you, we want to do two things. The first thing that we want to do is to humanize these opinions, help you realize that these are not just ideas. These are ideas held by large groups of people, large groups of people who think about these issues as seriously as you do who have as moral an approach to the way they look at the world as you do, who are as sincere as you are when they look at this topic. That's one. But the second thing we want to do is we want to slightly destabilize you. Mm. <laughs> Whenever you come to Pali and you vote on something, you, Brandon, you're a millennial man who lives in the US. What we want to do is to show, show you people who are like you, but disagree with you. We want to show, so you vote tell us that monarchy should be abolished. We'll say, hey, turns out that men like you, millennial men like you living in the US, turns out that you know 40% of them disagree with you, or maybe 70% of them disagree with you. You're a contrarian for your demographic. Or even if you're not a contrarian, there are large numbers of people like you who disagree with you. We want to challenge your sense of your own tribe. We want to we want to challenge your own identity. So that's the that's one thing we want to do. But we also want to expand your identity. So we want to show you people you're not like who do agree with you. So I want you as a millennial man living in the US to really to see that it turns out that generation X women from Sweden in large part agree with what you what with your vote as well. We want to break open your sense of I'm in my box right. and other people are outside it. We want you to realize that you have commonalities of interest, commonalities of values, commonalities of perspectives on the world with lots and lots and lots of people you may be surprised to learn about. What do you think the importance is of this identity and opinion tied together? Because right now, people try and win arguments a lot of times by dumping out facts on a subject, and it rarely ever changes that person's opinion. And I think people forget that we're emotional, social animals with beliefs and values that we want to be seen, acknowledged, heard, loved, all of those things coming up. 
as we're expressing ourselves. And we have to see the other person for who they are before we can actually understand their arguments, let alone their opinions. You're talking to my heart, not just my head here. I 100% agree with you. And I also think you're profoundly right here. And lots of the research bears you out too. So one, unfortunately, we know that there's this very weird backfire effect. Whereas if you throw a fact, which is true at somebody who has a a contrary view to yours, it will only reinforce their opinion about whatever it is. We've seen this for decades now with climate change. It turns out that some of the most virulent and successful climate change deniers are extremely clever people who, because they're great at arguing, will refute facts, the most obvious facts accepted by the entirety of the scientific community. They'll push back at them. This backfire effect is real. So it's you're right. Arguing purely on rational grounds with somebody for whom, who's, when their opinion is based on values or when their opinion is based on emotions, no kind of reason or fact is going to penetrate there. Arguing purely on rational grounds does not work because most opinions are post hoc. Most opinions we make to justify beliefs or values that we hold long before we thought of verbalizing them. And that's the fundamental thing that I think we need to get a a hold of in our heads. It's been as I've got more and more interested in opinions and how opinions are formed, it's been one of the great revelations for me, which is that I am much, much more generous with people whose opinions are different from mine once I've realized that my own opinions are, to some extent, kind of arbitrary. They're not really mine Hmm. because all of most of our opinions are inherited they're inherited from our parents why is it that that the child of jewish orthodox parents is going to believe in judaism that the child of hindus will believe in hinduism they inherit their beliefs from their their social context but one could even go further and say I, who am a jewish atheist yes of course my judaism is inherited in a sense by blood But I could also say that my atheism is also inherited by culture. Am I really so nonconformist when I suppose, perhaps not the majority, but at least a very sizable proportion of my friends are atheists and I live in a broadly post-God culture? Mm. So the cultural context in which we are brought up has a tremendous impact on our beliefs. If I'd been brought up in 12th century Persia, I'm sure I'd uh, I'd have very different views on the world. So... One, we inherit our beliefs and they're formed by our, the cultures around us. Two, we may also, in, we may also um, carry them in our genes to some extent. There is lots of data that shows that identical twins have, are, are much more likely to share political opinions than even fraternal twins, who are themselves much more likely to share political opinions than purely siblings, who are themselves more likely to share political opinions than strangers. So there is proof that our political opinions, at least, are to some extent inheritable actually in our genes. So once we put all these various things together, the fact that our our parents impact our beliefs, our cultural milieu impacts our beliefs, and actually we carry some of our beliefs in our very bodies, it hopefully takes some of the sting away from the outrage that you feel when you meet somebody who has very different opinions from you. Because the truth is, 
we can't really help our opinions that much. We can do an enormous amount of work to improve our cognitive approaches to the world. But our core tendencies, our, our, our deep sort of approach, that we can't change, most likely. And therefore, if we can't change it in ourselves, we've got to be a lot more tolerant of people who we disagree with who also can't change it in themselves. Thinking about opinions and arguments, having disagreement between another person is quite healthy for our society in terms of moving forward. It's how we work through things and come up with better solutions. When does this turn into polarization and it no longer is that healthy disagreement? And how does Parlia fit into the solution against that? Such a great question and such a tricky question. Very highest level, I feel that Great conversations become bad conversations when a couple of things happen, two or three big things. The first is, if you're not standing shoulder to shoulder, if you're not engaged in the same project as each other, then there's no incentive to have good conversations. The second key thing is that if you don't have the rules of engagement clearly established, you end up in a whole ton of trouble because... It's you're all, you invariably end up in a situation in which the person who's brought the gun to the knife fight is going to win, and therefore there's no incentive for anybody to not bring a gun. Right. And the third thing I think I'd say is that good conversations turn bad when there are no umpires. I'm sure there are lots of other things that um, that play into this, but very highest level, let me touch on each of those three things. If you and I fervently disagree about healthcare in the U.S but both of us profoundly are committed to the idea of a better U.S. society, then the conversation that we're going to have is going to be great for both of us. It'll be painful, but hopefully it brings us both together because we have the same shared objective. Mm. I've just talked about healthcare, but really what I'm saying is democracy. If we're all profoundly committed to improving whatever state we are, whether it's the UK here or the European Union or the US or wherever it might be, but all of us are really truly obsessed with trying to improve our country, then the political conversations that we have are, are going to be great conversations. Why? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to use the opposite side to better advance our argument, to tease it out better in that kind of way. And therefore, we think of them as this beautiful 18th century British parliamentarian term where the opposition is called the loyal opposition. This idea of the loyal opposition is fundamental to democracy because what it says is that the most important element of a democracy is the, is the side that disagrees with government. Mm -hmm. We know this, right? We can tell all the non-democracies in the world instantly recognizable by their absence of opposition. So actually, this beautiful to and fro between government and opposition, between two sides of a political, or two or three or ten sides of a political debate, when everybody's faced in the same direction, is precisely what improves our politics. It improves our science as well, right? It's the state straightforward right. scientific method. I propose something and I then send it through to you know a jury of my peers who do everything they can to tear it down. And hopefully we all improve in the process. So that kind of this shoulder to shoulder conversation with a common goal in mind, whether it's better politics or more accurate empirical science, that's one. The second thing is rules, rules of engagement. Now, a lot of people talk about civility and the importance of civility. And that has been badly misused as a concept because civility is almost invariably defined 
by the dominant class, right? Again, let's go back to 18th century Britain. If you didn't wear a wig, and if you couldn't speak in long, complicated sentences with a particular voice, dressed in particular clothes, standing in a particular way, ideally with the title behind you, <laughs> Viscount Pompous or Duke, whatever it might be, <laughs> you weren't allowed to have a conversation. Those were what the dominant class defined what counted as civil. And if you were not civil in that way, you were not allowed to partake in the conversation. That is not what I mean by civility. If people want to swear at each other, let them act it and let that be glorious. But it's this idea that you are actually engaged in the same kind of thing, the same kind of argument, which is you are actually committed to try and work out what the, tr what the truth is. So that's, I think, more, more what I mean by civility. And civility also touches on that first concept of standing shoulder to shoulder. There's a implicit in the in the idea of civility is that we are part of a civitas, we're part of a of a of a common citizenry. And that fundamental premise that the people you are arguing with are all part of that shared civitas is critical to any kind of conversation. What that means is you cannot exclude people. Everybody's included. And there's a sense that the whole is built and improved and is more than the sum of its parts. That's the second. And the third thing, especially important today, especially important over the course of the last few years across Europe and in the UK and very much in the US, is the importance of umpires. You can't run a game without umpires. You can't run a game. You can't run a conversation you can't run a democracy unless you trust that the umpires of that game or of that democracy are fair and impartial. It's so true with American football and cricket, like it's true of politics. Who are those umpires? They're academics who you trust are only and objectively interested in the truth. You at least trust that they're only an objective the interested in the truth and will not that they're going to find it, but they are absolutely committed to those objective principles. They are the judiciary that, of course, are filled with the prejudices and biases of the culture of the day, but are above all things trying to be true to a constitution and to a legal system that's been established over a long period of time. And they're the media. The media that in a sense, they're the, they're the front line of this arbitration on some level. They are, you have to trust that they too are profoundly committed to an objective retelling of what is happening around, around you. If you can't trust those umpires, then there is no incentive to be involved in the game. And by the game, let's be clear, I mean democracy. Mm -hmm. If you don't trust academics, if you don't trust judges, if you don't trust the ballot counters, if you don't trust voting officials, if you don't trust the media to report on what's going on fairly, then, and you get an election, then all that matters is winning because you are not involved in a democracy that you think is, you're not involved in a game that you think's fair. And the other, the other side's going to cheat too. Mm -hmm. So the only thing that matters is winning. I think this explains enormously what happened in the aftermath of the 2020 election in the US. But let's, and the storming of the Capitol and all those madnesses. <laughs> but let's also remind ourselves that something not entirely dissimilar happened after 2016, after Trump won. There was this huge outpouring on the Democrat side saying Russia stole the election. There was a sense that actually the umpires had been conned, had been fooled. So 
we both sides do it, left and right. Left and right have a tendency to want to blame the umpires, and both left and right have to commit to believing in them. And those umpires have to commit and make very explicit their commitment to be objective for this game to last, for the mm. game of democracy to last. There's a beautiful image, there's a beautiful notion of the idea of an infinite game. The infinite game is a game that you always play. You play a game of football. And of course, you have umpires for that 90 minutes of a game of football, and that's what you want to do. But actually, so that there's a rules, and you need somebody to win and somebody to lose. The reds, the greens, doesn't matter. For a 90-minute game, you can have a winner of a loser. But actually, what you really want is football to exist forever. Right. You, can, you want to build the right kind of leagues. You want to make sure that they're fair. You want to make sure that people are adequately compensated, that everybody can make commercial, that it can make commercial sense while at the same time not alienating fans. That the long game of football, the infinite game of football, is actually where you have to think systemically about the thing itself. Right, let's move from football to democracy. The problem with something like 2020, with the storming of the capital, a refusal to accept the electoral results, is that it mistakes democracy for a 90-minute game rather than an infinite game that you want to play forever. For that infinite game to work, you have to commit to the principles of democracy over and over and over again. So is Parley as a platform fitting in here by democratizing that empire to a community rather than these institutions that we say have the power of information over us? Is it bringing to light everyone's opinions so that we can start to not focus on what are the opinions, but focus on what is that overall goal that we're all trying to reach? You put it so well. Yes, one, we're trying to do that. I'm trying to pull, I'm trying to make sure that we're all getting as much access to as many ideas as possible. But the other thing that I think I want to do in the process is promote this idea, which is, again, very banal, but we might, but some of us at least have forgotten it, that we evolve not just as individuals, but as a society. And that societal element is much the most important. There's a very strong argument, which I love, made by a French theorist called Daniel Sperber and actually his colleague, Hugo Mercier. Their argument is that actually humans are really bad at arguing in their own heads alone. Hmm. We've got so many cognitive flaws, right? Whether it's confirmation bias or the you know backfire effect or i mean you know, we we selective selection bias we're terrible reasoners <laughs> we're tribal we're emotional we get head up about things we hate being told we're wrong we hate being we hate being argued against etc cetera, etc cetera. you know and for many of us after 18 months of lockdown we've done a lot of arguing inside our own heads what sperber and mercier argue is that we've actually evolved not to argue alone but to argue together not to think alone, not to ideate alone, but to ideate in groups. Their argument is that actually when you bring a bunch of people together, all the cognitive flaws that we, that we have, confirmation bias and the ones that we've just been talking about, all of those come into their own. Because a group of, again, this is in the realm of evolutionary psychology, but you know, 10 of us sitting around a campfire with a bit of mammoth steak 30,000 years ago, trying to work out whether we're going to go north or go south, whether we're going to go and attack the, the neighboring tribe or defend against the neighboring tribe. It turns out that when we all come together and argue, and we are all shoulder to shoulder, and we are all arguing about the same thing, and we are in that sense a civitas, we are civil with each other because we're part of the same 
group with the same objectives. Suddenly at that point, the fact that I want to go north and you want to go south and that Joey wants to go east and, you know, Geraldine wants to go west. And we are deeply committed to those ideas. And we are, we only see things in those times. And we are, our confirmation bias is switched on and our emotions are switched on and we hate being told that we're wrong and all those other things. It makes us argue better. It actually creates a kind of a crucible of fire (laughs) to get the best ideas to erupt. Mm-hmm. So I love this idea that we didn't evolve as individuals. We evolved actually as a superorganism. And therefore, it, and it, of course, it talks to the very foundation stone of democracy, which is that we are collectively more than we are alone, not just because we can defend ourselves better, not just because we can divide labor amongst much larger groups of people, but actually because collectively we take better decisions than we do alone. What I want to do with Palia is, is remind people that we are a much smarter group than we are an individual. Well, a major part of Parley is because of it's a crowdsourced platform requires building a community online, much like Wikipedia or Reddit. And sometimes those communities get very much out of hand, can go off the rails very quickly. So how do you build this strong community, taking in these ideals that you have without having the us versus them mentality that sometimes shows up on Twitter and it just goes down a you know a rabbit hole. So one, we hope that this key design feature, which helps people remind themselves that they exist in a broader series of groups, right? That they that people who, who look like them may disagree with them very strongly, that people who really don't look like them at all may agree with them. We want, we want to humanize all these ideas. And by humanizing these ideas, hopefully we make them more real, Hopefully, we make it less easy to throw um, rocks uh, in that brutal, unconstructive way that we've that, that exists on so many of the social platforms. But I think that the fundamental thing about it, about a platform like Palia or like Reddit or like Quora or like Wikipedia is not even the tools. It's actually the community. Mm. It's the kind of people who come on, and it's the kind of shared intent of the people who come on. So what we really want to do is we want to, especially in these early days, we want to be bringing onto the platform people who really care about the value of ideas, but who people who are also really interested in this idea of building a, a sort of a larger us. I'm using that term. It belongs to somebody called Alex Evans, who's building literally a nonprofit called Larger Us, which helps people understand that they're part of a, a greater commonality than purely either their political tribe or their ethnic tribe or their age demographic or whatever it is. So I think we need to be bringing on those people. We're talking, we bring, we brought on a lot of debaters, people who are sort of in their very nature fascinated by the idea of getting to truth through conversation. But we've also brought on, you know, we've got philosophy communities on, is on Palia and, and hopefully some of your listeners. There has to be a trust for these people that when they come to this platform, it's going to be one that they're not going to be used. And so what I'm thinking now of is Twitter and the other large social media platforms, you know, selling data and those sorts of things. What is the business model behind Parlia that continues to have trust as a foundation for those users, but also, you know, makes it valuable for you guys as a company? Such a great question. So we will almost certainly roll out some of the standard features of most media companies advertising, sponsorship, maybe membership, et cetera. But we also will will be looking at data. We 
have already started working with Oxford University around a project on morality. Hmm. So we're already asking members of Palia to answer some quizzes on morality. It's a lovely project. I'll tell you briefly about it. Oliver Scott Curry, who's at Oxford and who's also research director for the Kindness Organization, he's an amazing man, has a thesis, which is that, in fact, morality is identical all over the world in all societies. Hmm. And that morality is just another word for cooperation. And so everything that we do that we think is moral or immoral is in fact something that we do because we think it is cooperative or uncooperative. What we're doing is we're running a quiz with him, 21 questions around morality, which we will then map against the other answers that people are voting against to see whether there are any interesting correlations there. Because they think it would be really interesting for them as they understand, try and understand whether there are, what the corollaries are for people who think that it's heroism is more important than family, for example, or purity is more important than heroism whatever it might be, the kind of terms of morality that he's established. So we think we can do tremendously exciting work at really quite large scale yeah. to understand how it is that people think and how it is that we put our opinions together and what kind of demographic groupings we drop into to try and see if we can map some of the underlying value systems of the human brain. Hmm. and where they come from. So we absolutely want to be working with those that element of data. But the kind of work that we're doing is impossible to translate into, you know, should we use pink or green wrapping paper for your shampoo? Or we, we can't do that. Right. So we're not going to be able to be properly playing, doing the data work that, you know, that you say, talk about Twitter or Facebook, etc. We're not going to be able to we, not only do we not want to, but we also will not be able to do that kind of that kind of work. And but we do want to be working with big institutions, and we do want to be working with research organisations to try and do this much more sort of meta level analysis of global attitudes, because I think it's absolutely fascinating. We think it should be out in the public domain, and and we think there's value there. So that's I imagine where we'll we will be making the base the bulk of our business model. But I, let let me add something else. It's also precisely what we want to be sharing back to our users. So unlike Twitter or Facebook that harvests all that data and then repackages and pushes it on, we want to be sharing that data with all our users. In mm. fact, if you go to Palia now and you vote on anything you see there, it will also tell you, hey, turns out that this is how other people voted on this. Turns out that you've got lots in common with a, you know, a centrist from Somalia rather than a, you know, generation Xer from Argentina. We want to be sharing that data back. One, so that you can understand your opinions in the broader context of global attitudes. But two, so that you can also start to understand yourself. Mm. This thing that you so articulately said earlier, which is that in fact, our opinions, we've sort of, we voice these opinions, we verbalize opinions, but actually they often come from somewhere much deeper. We're often arguing about, you know, whether there should be a bypass in front of this town or a, or, or which restaurant we should go to with our friends. But actually what we're really saying is I need to be heard or I feel like I've been disenfranchised or hell, mommy never loved me, whatever it might be. So there's, there's, we also want to go back into that. And so we're also going to be running out lots of surveys and quizzes for you privately. We want to be using Big Five Ocean. So these, these big old personality tests, that's one of the ones which is really properly well, well established and broadly accepted by the psychological community. And we want to be developing some of our own to help you understand, you know, 
your your particular attitudes to religion, for example, your particular attitude to social protest. I mean, your particular attitude to finance, to the role of capitalism in society, whatever it might be. We want we want to be honing these these quizzes, these surveys, so that we can help all our users and ourselves mm. better understand actually what our own values are. Yeah, you have a podcast called On Opinion, which you've spoken with dozens of experts uh, around the subject of opinion. What has changed the most about how you understand opinions and act in your everyday life from these people that you've learned from? Brandon, such a great question. And and yes, it's been the most extraordinary sort of journey of discovery interviewing these brilliant, brilliant people. We've spoken to philosophers, psychologists, social psychologists, neuroscientists, biologists, all trying to understand what is an opinion? Where do they come from? What makes them? But we've also spoken to lots of people who are trying to bridge this polarization gap, who try to explain where polarization comes from. They've spoken about, you know, the different kinds of polarization, some of which are good, some of which are bad across across the US, across the UK. So yes, it's been a, it's been just fascinating. I suppose the, the thing that has really hit me most is something I've already said to you, which is that actually uh, these things that we hold so dear are dearly held and deeply believed opinions aren't really ours. They are, of course, of course, on some level they are because we hold them and they determine in many in many ways how we live our lives. But there's also an element of arbitrariness there, and realizing that is a tremendous release from the brutal us versus them, the brutal winning an argument sort of approach to the ways in we in which we engage with the world. I'm sort of naturally a sort of centrist agnostic. I'm naturally always sort of confused and excited by ideas that I don't really get or positions that I don't understand. So I always want to know more. I feel like it's not quite being one of those people who always agrees with the last thing they've been told, because I I think I'm not that. Uh, I think I may often disagree with the last thing I've been told, (laughs) but I'm always interested in trying to understand where it comes from. What's the underlying motivation there? And so I'm sort of naturally excited by this discovery that our, our ideas are emerge from somewhere much deeper in ourselves, our stomachs, our guts, our souls, our deeper consciousnesses than, than the ways in which we often imagine ourselves to form opinions. So that's, I think, the biggest piece for me. But the second most important discovery really with running on opinion, the podcast, is thinking about ways in which we fix some of this. Thinking of how important it is to remind ourselves that we are all part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. This shoulder-to-shoulder piece that I was saying earlier, if that's not there, if that's not present, if we're not playing the infinite game, if we don't understand the importance of bringing everybody into that same civitas, that granting everybody civility in a sense, if we don't do that, we are on a hiding to nothing. And we've seen the speed of political fracture and political polarization over the course of the last few years in both the US and the UK, but also across Eastern Europe, we've seen the tremendous speed um, at which populism has taken hold all over what we thought were stable democracies, whether it's Hungary and Poland and Europe, the rise of populism in France with the Rassemblement National, similarly in Spain, the rise of populism in the US, the rise of populism all over Central and South America and East Asia and India. 
Populism is, in a sense, the greatest threat to democracy because it's so insidious to it. It's a shadow of democracy. It looks and smells like it could be democratic, but in fact, it's its absolute nemesis. Mm. It's the thing which brings down democracy from the inside because what it requires, what populism requires, is for one group of people to exclude another group of people from this civitas, from inclusion in what counts as being the people. The idea of populism is often misunderstood. People often think that populism is all about finding an elite and hating upon it. That's what counts as populist. It's not true. Often there's an attack against the elite, but really what populism is and what and the reason populism gets its name is because populism is an exercise in determining who counts as the people. I'm just taking the US as an example. We can do it in the UK. But when Hillary Clinton describes deplorables, she's excluding them from the people. When Donald Trump talks about all immigrants as bad hombres, um, he's excluding them from the people. What's a future that you hope to build for your son and daughter? My goodness, what a question. What a question. I, so I'm so anxious about the future for my children and how they are and what they're doing that the idea of sort of putting them on across a wider canvas freaks me out. What do I hope the world looks like for them? I long for a world which has got considerably less inequality in it. I long for a world in which there is the kind of equality of opportunity that we found across large parts of Europe. I hope that spreads around the world. I hope that we live in a in a in a truly global civilization where, as I said before, we're able to realize we're all part of something and all shoulder to shoulder and trying to improve it, whether it's our local democracies or the state of our nature, the shape of our planet. While I've got a whole series of ideas of what counts as the good life and what counts as a life well lived. Let me just remind myself that that's just one opinion. And one of the amazing things about having kids is that at a certain point, you've got to back away from your idea of what counts as good mm -hmm. because they're fully human. So if I end up with children who share none of my political beliefs and values and have a totally different approach to engaging with the whatever it is, 70, 80, 90 odd years that they may have on the planet, then grand and wonderful. Wouldn't that be amazing? It means I it will have meant that I won't have brainwashed them too badly mm. in their formative years. So yeah, who knows? I want them to have a party. Oh, I love that answer. Turi, there's a dozen more questions I have for you. But before I get to my last question, is there a call to action you would like to leave our listeners with today? Brandon, thank you for asking. Yes, I would love your listeners to come to Palia, to join, join, join the platform, vote, play, and to be in touch with me with any kind of feedback. It's one of the things that I do, you know, with all forms of any kind of business that I engage with, which does something which I don't like, I try and make an effort to write to them, to tell them, just because I know how tremendously valuable that feedback is. So it's, it's, it's literally the most valuable feedback. The va valuable activity that there is is when people write you and say, your customer service is terrible or your colors are the wrong shape and I can't see them on mobile or whatever it might be. So if there's one thing I could ask your listeners is please come to Palia, which is palia.com. And with anything, please email me the slightest thing at turi, T-U-R-I, at palia.com. Every piece of feedback is golden. And then, of course, same thing with the podcast, On Opinion, um, which is uh, hopefully everywhere. Again, 
please get stuck in. I kind of feel like the listeners of your podcast might be interested in some of the things on my podcast and vice versa. So, and again, any feedback would be wonderful. Absolutely. Well, we will put all of that in the show notes. My last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? We need to figure out a way of breaking the us and them. We need to figure out a way of reminding ourselves that human beings are a superorganism that we need left and right to evolve, that we need opposite sides to make a beautiful game, that we need of this tremendous multiplicity of opinions to take us forward. If we exclude that possibility, not only do we end up with the end of science and the end of democracy, but we also end up with the end of personal growth. Mm. And so we evolve by reminding ourselves that we are considerably bigger together than alone. Love that, Terry. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your brilliant questions. Thank you for listening and joining the Evolution Revolution. If this episode was impactful for you, then share it with a friend, because pushing the world to evolve takes more than just you or I. Until next time, my friends, keep evolving. Keep evolving.